Hi, this is Holly Fields, and you are listening to the Quantum Leap Podcast. Theorizing that one could time travel within his own lifetime, Dr. Sam Beckett led an elite group of scientists into the desert to develop a top-secret project known as Quantum Leap. Pressured to prove his theories or lose funding, Dr. Beckett prematurely stepped into the Project Accelerator and vanished. In the blink of a cosmic clock, I went from quantum physicist to Air Force test pilot, which could have been fun if I knew how to fly. Fortunately, I had help. An observer from the project named Al. Unfortunately, Al's a hologram, so all he can lend is moral support. Anyway, here I am. Bouncing around in time, putting things right that once went wrong. A sort of time-traveling Lone Ranger with Al as my tanto. And I don't even need a mask. You are listening to the Quantum Leap Podcast. This is episode 11, The Americanization of Machiko. You got hooked by Naomi, and you have a miserable marriage. So Ziggy figures you're here to keep Charlie from tying the knot with the bottled brunette. Ziggy figures, uh, 97%. My name is Machiko McKenzie. I tried to find my husband. Of course, there's always that 3% margin of error. You just waltz in here with that Japanese bride and expect me to take her in? How could you do this to me? I wasn't thinking of it as doing something to you. That woman will never be part of my family. Do you hear me? Never! Sam, Mexico's been hurt! I think she might be dying! I told her that I didn't care what other folks thought, that she was my baby and I was going to love her no matter what. She didn't hear me. Machiko can hear you. I can't do for her what I couldn't do for Eileen. Hello and welcome back to the Quantum Leap Podcast. I'm Albie. And I'm Heather. And this week we have a great show for you. We're talking about the Americanization of Machiko. It is the 12th episode. It is the third episode in season two. Also, coming up later in the episode, we have a great interview with Kay Callan. She played Lenore, Sam's Leapy's mother, in this episode. That's a fantastic interview, and it's coming up later, and you'll want to stay tuned. Heather, first impressions. This was a good episode. I never really got to see a show address the Japanese-American relationship in the 1950s. So it was interesting, a little glimpse into history that I haven't seen before. Did you know about all this kind of history before this episode? Um, I knew about it. Well, I mean, I knew about the internment camps in the 1940s and, you know, the backlash basically of Pearl Harbor and the way that the Americans felt. But I guess I just never really saw it in a fictional show before. What about you? What was your first impression of the show? I really like this episode. 
this is one of the things that makes Quantum Leap Quantum Leap for me when they tackle an issue. And there was uh, several issues in this show. Of course, foremost is racism against Japanese Americans. That's an obvious one. And also they talked about unwed mothers, teen pregnancy, and suicide. So some issues in this episode. Yeah. And also just racism as a whole with marrying a different race, which was a thing in the 50s. You know, you married, I guess, the same race and kind of didn't really have mixed racial marriages, right? Yeah, I think uh, in earlier episodes, we were talking about that, how uh, people would protest against people marrying people of other ethnicities. What's crazy is this was 11 years after Pearl Harbor. I guess hatred is persistent. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, we're about, what, 12 years after the 9-11 attack, and people still have the same opinions of race towards the Muslim community. Yeah, so it's about the same thing now as it was then. And of course, a lot of people have realized now that it's not all Muslims that were responsible for the attacks on the U.S. It was a certain small group. Well, and also our government wasn't on board with the racism this time. I mean, with the Japanese American internment camps, the government was a huge part of the racism issue. So times have changed a lot and our country as a whole isn't as racist as it used to be. There's still going to be the groups of people that hold racist issues with anybody, actually. <laughs> I mean, there's always going to be that group of people that hates everybody for whatever they can find, you know? You're black on the left side. I'm black on the right side. That was a funny episode. Star Trek. Yeah. And it's funny because nobody on the Star Trek crew noticed <laughs> until they pointed it out. Well, that's uh, like these episodes. It points out the absurdity of people's hatred. Yeah, I mean, if I had to pick somebody to be friends with, I would rather be friends with Machiko than Lenore. I mean, Machiko is a much better person than Lenore, and Lenore felt that she was higher and mightier and could make judgment when she had no room to talk. She was not a nice person. I mean, she was very ignorant and naive, Yes, I think. and worried about what people were going to say. Yeah. And I think this episode did good with two bad guys, really. Lenore was a bad guy, I'd say. And definitely Rusty was a bad guy. So it showed that being racist isn't only like what Rusty did. The examples of graffiti and name calling and, and violence. He was the obvious racist. What's weird is she was afraid of other people saying things and talking behind her back. But if you notice, like they all accepted Machiko. Yeah, she was the only one that had a problem with it. Right. And Lenore was still stuck on the whole situation that happened with her daughter. You know, kind of rightly so. Her daughter died. She killed herself in part because she didn't have the support of her mom like she needed at the time. So instead of Lenore learning a lesson from that, she just kept continuing that. Right. Well, I think the guilt blocked her vision because like she said in the episode, if she couldn't do it for Eileen, then why would she do it for Machiko? Or, you know, she couldn't do it for Machiko, which... I mean, it was just an overpowering guilt that she had that she couldn't see past, I think. And luckily, she did see past it. And Sam, you know, stuck up for his wife, which I guess in the original timeline, Charlie didn't stick up for her. And she went back to Japan and he... Did we know if he married Naomi? Yes, that's what Al said Sam was there to do in the first place is stop them from being married. And Naomi, I'm not really a big fan of her either. She even... She was... Not a nice person. <sighs> There's a lot of bad people, but we'll get to that after the episode recap. This is season two, episode three, The Americanization of Machiko. Original broadcast date, October 11th, 1989. Written by Charlie Coffey. 
directed by Gilbert Shilton. Sam leaps in while stepping off a bus and wearing a sailor's outfit. Sam discovers that he has leaped into a young Navy officer named Charlie McKenzie and deduces that he has just returned home after serving in the Far East. Charlie's father, Henry, appears to welcome him home and give him a hug. The two get into Henry's truck and drive off. As they do so, a young Japanese woman named Machiko steps off the bus and calls after them, but neither hear or see her. As Sam and Henry return back to their farmhouse, they are greeted by Charlie's mother, Lenore, and Charlie's former sweetheart, Naomi. Naomi says she has waited two years for Charlie to come home, though Lenore points out that Naomi still had relationships with other men in that time. Naomi now believes that the two of them will get married. However, Al appears to tell Sam that he is here to stop Charlie and Naomi from getting married as they end up having a miserable life together. Sam's mission soon becomes complicated as the local policeman Herman arrives with Machiko, having been approached by her in the street. He says that Machiko is Charlie's new bride. Lenore, Henry, and Naomi are shocked, while Sam simply tells everyone, Surprise! Sam and Machiko are in the living room with Henry and Lenore, becoming acquainted. Though Henry is open-minded and friendly towards Machiko, Lenore remains hostile and uninviting towards her. Al says that Lenore never accepted Machiko, and as a result, Machiko was forced to return to Japan alone and heartbroken. The next morning, Machiko attempts to please Lenore by cleaning the floor and cooking rice for breakfast. However, Lenore rudely dismisses her efforts and insults her Japanese customs. Machiko leaves the room upset. Sam goes out to comfort her. He says that Lenore will eventually accept her in time. He also tells Machiko that in America, men and women have equal rights and that as his wife, she is his partner, not his servant. With that, Machiko tells Sam she would like him to take her into town to buy new clothes. Machiko also insists that he teach her to drive his car. Though Sam is keen to teach Machiko American customs and values, he also hopes Machiko will retain her unique Japanese heritage at the same time. As they arrive in town, a bitter World War II veteran named Rusty deliberately bumps into Sam on the street and verbally harasses the two of them. Sam ignores him and takes Machiko into the local clothing store. After they leave, with Machiko now wearing American clothing, they find Sam's truck has been graffitied with the words, Jap, go home. Sam eyes Rusty suspiciously and drives back home with Machiko. While Henry and Lenore are returning home from church along with the Reverend Earl and his wife Betty, Sam and Machiko are back on the farm performing chores. Machiko is out in the yard putting clothes on the line, topless, while Sam is sorting through bales of hay in the barn. Naomi approaches him flirtatiously and makes a pass at him. Despite trying to ward her off, the two fall from the pile of hay onto the ground. Machiko arrives to see if they are okay. At the same time, Henry, Lenore, Earl, and Betty arrive at the farm. Machiko turns around to face them, exposing her naked chest, prompting Betty to faint and Lenore to respond with outrage and humiliation. Sam explains that Japanese women often perform chores topless in hot weather and tells them she didn't mean to offend anyone. Earl says they are not offended and leaves with Betty, encouraging everyone to attend the church picnic the following day. Lenore is not so forgiving. She is so humiliated that she refuses to go to the church picnic where she will be gawked at, just like her late daughter Eileen was ostracized before she died. Naomi explains that she was the only one of Eileen's friends who stood by her when she was ostracized by the town for getting pregnant out of wedlock. Nonetheless, Eileen committed suicide by driving her car off a cliff. 
Sam thanks Naomi for being supportive of Eileen, but tells her that he is married now and that their relationship together is over. Naomi takes the rejection hard and chooses to enact her revenge upon Machiko. At the church picnic the next day, she tricks Machiko into calling the local mayor and his wife fat. Realizing that her comments have offended them, Machiko runs off upset and tells Naomi she is not a good person. Machiko approaches Sam and says she has shamed him. Sam tells her she could never shame him and invites her to watch a game of baseball to cheer her up. As Sam steps up to bat, Rusty, who is an expert baseball player, throws two difficult pitches, one of which nearly hits Sam in the head. The ref tells Rusty to play fair. Sam manages to hit the ball in the third swing while Rusty, intent on revenge, attempts to tackle Sam while he is running to third base. Sam asks what his problem is, while Rusty responds that he hates Japs. The two prepare to lunge at each other, but are held back by the surrounding townsfolk. As Sam, Henry, and Machiko return home, a windy storm gathers overhead. Sam and Henry go to clear the animals into the barn while Machiko joins Lenore in the storm cellar. Lenore receives a phone call from one of the townsfolk informing her of Machiko's insulting comment to the mayor. Lenore is outraged and tells Machiko she never wants to see her again. Devastated, Machiko runs off and soon finds herself alone on an isolated road where Rusty, who happens to be driving by, offers her a ride. Upon realizing that Machiko has run off, Sam sets out to look for her. Al tells him she is with Rusty and Sam drives to Rusty's home. Rusty has stopped the car outside his house and bitterly recalls how his career as a baseball player was destroyed after he was injured in the war by the Japanese. Rusty produces a knife and prepares to cut off Machiko's arm as a form of vengeance. Sam arrives and pushes Rusty away from Machiko. Rusty throws a rock in Sam's direction, which hits Machiko through the front windshield of the car and knocks her unconscious. Sam and Rusty end up in a violent confrontation, with Sam ultimately beating Rusty until he collapses. Sam, Henry, and Lenore wait outside while Machiko remains in critical condition at the hospital. Sam tells Lenore to go into the room and offer Machiko support. However, Lenore cannot bring herself to do so. Eileen was brought into the same room the night she died. She tried to reach out to Eileen, but she did not hear her and died soon after. Since she was unable to reach out to her own daughter, Lenore cannot reach out to Machiko. Henry reveals that Lenore is not so much angry at Machiko, but angry at herself for failing to prevent Eileen's suicide. Days later, Machiko is fully recovered and Sam is awaiting her arrival at the church, where the two of them are to be remarried in America. Sam is nervous that he will be forced to make a vow of marriage to Machiko before leaping, but Al tells him he will leap as soon as Lenora finally accepts Machiko. As Machiko arrives at the altar with the reverend about to commence the wedding ceremony, Lenore suddenly enters the church, dressed in Japanese garb in an attempt to show acceptance towards Machiko. Lenore gives Machiko a bow of respect, which Machiko reciprocates, while Sam smiles and leaps. Thank you so much, Heather. You're welcome. How many times did you just say Machiko? A lot. <laughs> I, I didn't count, but a lot. Can somebody out there please count the amount of times we say Machiko during this program? <laughs> Keep a running total. It could become a drinking game. <laughs> Good idea. <laughs> Thank you to the Quantum Leap Wikia for a beautifully written recap. Mushy mushy. Ohio gozaimasu. That's the only Japanese I know. It means hello and good morning. I try to know a little bit of every language. I'd like to know a lot of every language, but I know a little bit. For me, this episode, it's about a lot of things. And like I said earlier, I really enjoyed it. I think overall this episode is dealing with 
of course, racism against Japanese Americans, but in particularly Machiko and Lenore and their differences. And Sam's there to help. If you notice the way Lenore acted towards Naomi, she didn't like Naomi for Charlie either. So I think that she's your typical, no girl is good for my son. And then when you throw in the racism thing, she was like, oh, no, no, no. Right. When you throw in the uh, how to look in front of the neighbors. Right. And again, I'm judging this situation from my eyes in the year 2014, the future. (laughs) And as a parent, I don't know how I could choose peer pressure from the neighbors and the community over my child. Yeah, but that still happens today. Well, not over this issue, I don't think. No, but over, I mean, people make parenting decisions based on what other people think all the time. And race is still a big thing. I mean, people, they'll be like, oh, yeah, it's fine if your son marries another man. That's fine. But when it's my son marrying another man, I have a problem with that. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like, people have, especially with, it's anything like that, with racism, too. You know, oh, I'm fine with mixed marriages as long as it's not my kid. I I don't know. People are still, we're not perfect yet. Well, I'm just saying, you know, everybody else be damned. Uh, I'm going to support my child. Oh, I agree. I think that... Well, I think everybody deserves to be happy right? as a whole, but especially my child deserves to be happy. Whatever makes her happy, so be it. It's really sad to say, but if Lenore had been more supportive to Eileen and uh, been there for her, she probably wouldn't have driven off a cliff. Right. And Lenore knows that. Oh, yeah. Does she know that? That's why she's torturing herself nonstop. Yeah. But I mean, if I made a decision that resulted in my daughter's death, I'm pretty sure I would torture myself, too. I mean, I would never be in that situation to not support her. But I don't know. It was a different time back then, too. I mean, I think back then when when you got pregnant, you went away for the nine months or whatever and then came back and the baby was gone. I mean, you know, it was a very different time. Um, My brother's first child that happened in our family. This is way before I was born. When I was a young adult, I found out I had a nephew that nobody had talked about because this had happened I want to say early 70s. And even back then, if you were under 18 and not married, the baby got adopted out and it wasn't your choice. Now, it's very accepting to be pregnant. I mean, it's not common. I think there was maybe two or three girls through my high school four years that were pregnant. But it was just like, ooh, she got pregnant. Sucks for her. And that was it. You know what I mean? Now... I know that there's a school nearby here that actually has like a daycare built in and will come get the mom to breastfeed or will come, you know, get the mom out of class to take care of the baby for whatever reason. And that's really awesome because being a teen mom, I'm sure, is the worst. I mean, it's not like you do it on purpose. It's, you know, it's an accident. And I think that there needs to be more education on the subject instead of just hush hush about everything i mean a lot of people are are they think that if you don't say anything that teens won't know about all of that stuff and that's not the case at all so i know that you know more education and more acceptance of the issue is is a good way to go i mean i don't i haven't seen the show on mtv but i know that it's controversial over whether it's encouraging teen pregnancy or showing how hard it is and being a mom in my mid 20s I is hard having a job and being a mom is hard having homework and going to school and being a mom I'm sure is even harder and being 16 
and pregnant, it would be the scariest thing ever. So it's good that our society is more accepting. I don't know if it's completely accepting, but I know that it's more supportive and more accepting of it now than, you know, sending you off to a boarding school where you secretly have a baby and you're not allowed to talk about it and you don't have anybody there to support you or you don't have any shoulder to cry on. I I just can't imagine how frightening that would be for a teenage girl to go through. Definitely. And that's why I think it is so important to have that support system of your mother or your parents. Charlie's dad seemed like a really great guy. Yeah, but when you're pregnant, like your mom is the person you're like, oh, well, you went through this with me. Like you were pregnant with me. So you should be there to tell me, you know, what to expect and and is this normal and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Your mom should be there to support you. And in any situation growing up, if your mom doesn't support your decision or you're in a tough situation and your mom is giving you more harassment than support, it's going to make it rough on you. I think that's one thing that this show does really well with the issue of teen pregnancy and racism and all the other issues. It's a show that was on in 1989, and they were showing what people did, felt like, and acted in the 50s in this particular episode, 1953, I believe. Mm -hmm. So in 1989, people might still be racist and have problems with different people for different reasons, but not as much as they did, say, in the 1950s. So they show the extreme of what happened in the 1950s and make people examine themselves and their actions and their beliefs in 1989. And of course, they're not going to be as extreme in most cases as throwing things at women's heads to knock them out because of hatred. But it might make people think, wow, that was over the top back then. And then they think themselves, well, maybe my thinking on this subject is also wrong and I should reexamine it myself. And if not on a conscious level, maybe subconsciously. So maybe that's almost why this show works so well in helping people figure out right from wrong. Dating back to even Star Trek, there was a lot of, um, in this time period, more so than now, um, there was a lot of morality shows that tried to say, hey, it's not good to be racist and it's not good to be sexist and it's not good to, you know, discriminate against anybody or be violent or, you know, things like that. And it's an awesome way to teach somebody without them knowing how to decide right from wrong. It really is. And uh, say say you're a racist sitting home watching this on television. Are you going to identify with Rusty or are you going to follow the story and identify with Sam because he's the leading man and sympathize with Machiko and think what Rusty's doing and what Lenore is doing is wrong? Um. Well, I'm not a racist, so <laughs> I don't I mean, I don't know. I, I I know that with discrimination comes a lot of excuses and a lot of altered viewing like you know like they say oh well it was because of such and such or i i feel this way because of whatever there there's people that justify their beliefs and i think that somebody who is an extreme racist or who agrees technically with rusty would watch this and say that they see where rusty was coming from but maybe he took it a little too far i agree what you're saying so i think It's not for the people that are extremist and like have websites dedicated to racism and hatred. I think it's for the people who maybe through miseducation or a bad upbringing or just from their environment have picked up prejudiced feelings towards other people. 
Yeah, like maybe unintentionally became racist and had opinions because they never really thought about the issue. So what this show might do is take those people and maybe give them an aha moment. Yeah, like, oh, maybe they weren't so bad. I mean, some people just have opinions because they go with other people's opinions. They want to fit in. Yeah, but they, and, and some people don't even research it. They say, so-and-so said this, so it must be true. Yeah, a lot of people are like that. I don't understand that. I'm a very free thinker, and I need to know why something is. And if I ever hear anything ever about anything, I always ask after I hear it, why? And is it true? But that's just me. I'm... See, I don't think I'm as extreme as you are with with learning why, but I still research like crazy and I still want to learn everything. I'm, you know, I'm big into history and I like science and and I love to learn new things. And I I like to learn about issues and why we did the things we did and, and stuff like that. I'm not as bad as, you know, I need to know what this abbreviation stands for like you are. But again, one of the reasons why I really like this show and why I consider myself fortunate to watch the show while I was growing up in my formative years, like I've said before, it probably influenced a lot of my beliefs. Yeah, I see. I mean, obviously, I didn't watch this when I was growing up because I'm watching it now. But um, I think that my generation is a little bit more open minded as far as racism and stuff. I mean, you still have your parents, grandparents and the sort still saying their racist comments or whatever. But I think that growing up in school, you didn't know the difference. Like, I mean, I had, I still have friends of any color and I had no idea they were any other color than me. I mean, it's weird. I I just don't think of it like that. You know, I, I don't consider somebody to be any different than me by their skin color, by the way they talk, by anything like that. If you're a jerk, which I've said in the other episodes, if you're not nice to me, then I don't like you. I don't care what color you are, how you talk, what your name is. If you're nice to me, we're cool. If you're not nice to me, I don't like you. That's just, <laughs> that's that's the main factor in all this. Racism back then was very prevalent, especially against Japanese people and Japanese Americans because of the war. World War II was going on. Pearl Harbor had just happened. In this country, there was a lot of propaganda against Japanese people and Japanese Americans. And uh, from surprising sources, there are cartoons that were put out in the movie theater that make fun of Japanese, call them Japs, and Japs go home, and how Japanese people are the enemy, and we have to kill and exterminate the enemy, and this is like uh, cartoons. You would never see that anywhere. You have to actually go and research this stuff, and it's it's out there. You can find it, and you can see all this horrible stuff that's racist, not only against Japanese, but African Americans, and it goes on. But that's how prevalent racism was, was you could just put it in children's cartoons and nobody cared yeah but i mean look at the look at the government with the internment camps the government backed the racism there i mean they were sneaky about it because fdr signed an executive order authorizing removal of any or all people from military areas as deemed necessary or desirable so what they did was they deemed the west coast like california oregon area ish um as a military area so they could take out whoever they wanted to. So they took out over 110,000 people of Japanese ancestry, even second, third generation people who had been born here. And the, <laughs> I mean, it's just crazy. 
from some accounts I've heard, even if you look slightly Japanese, you might have been Korean or Chinese and also placed in these camps because they didn't know who to trust. Funny thing about that is there were 10 people that were actually convicted for spying for Japan um, and none of them were of Japanese ancestry. So they all they did this because they thought that the Japanese could not be trusted and we couldn't trust any of them until they were wiped off the face of the earth. I think that was a quote that was that I read. And um, turns out none of them were paired with Japan. <laughs> Stupidity, ignorance and people being scared. Well, and right after Pearl Harbor, most of our country stuck up for the Japanese Americans saying that they had nothing to do with it. And around six weeks after Pearl Harbor, the opinion started to change. The press started releasing things, you know, um, slowly but surely the country started to turn on the Japanese Americans. And by February 19th, which is 10 weeks after Pearl Harbor, um, FDR signed the executive order. So it took 10 weeks for our entire country and government to turn on the Japanese Americans, which is not a long time at all. Because of propaganda. Well, yeah. And... um, it was like, you know, one person said something to another person. It was like, hey, you know, maybe we should do something about that. And it just spread like wildfire. It's very sad. Well, and it was really messed up because it's been said by, I think it was Ronald Reagan said that our it was due to poor leadership and racism. And the Census Bureau was even helping out by illegally giving out confidential information about where Japanese Americans were living, which they didn't find that out until 2007. At least our government doesn't do that kind of stuff today. We hope not. (laughs) Um, I was wanking. uh, But yeah, in 1980, Jimmy Carter conducted an investigation into the justification of the camps, and he found little evidence of disloyalty and ended up paying $20,000 to each camp survivor as like an apology. To further the government apology, in 1988, Reagan signed a legislative order that apologized for internment on behalf of the government and said that the government actions were racist, prejudiced, war hysteria, and a failure of political leadership. So our government was pretty embarrassed, I think, after that. It should be. It should be sent to its room. (laughs) Bad. I think that's what that order was, being uh, accepting punishment. Yeah, well, I mean, most of the people, I think it was like, 80,000 out of the 110,000 were second generation born in the United States American citizens. There was third generation. I mean, there still was first generation Japanese citizens who couldn't get U.S. citizenship that were still put in the internment camps. But for the majority, they were U.S. citizens. You know, I mean, that's just wrong. It's racist, plain and simple. One of the most famous people I know of that was in an internment camp was George Takei, Sulu from Star Trek. And uh, if you've ever heard an interview with him about that, you learn a lot because he was there firsthand. And yeah, I think he was a kid, right? Yeah, he was a child growing up. And uh, he actually went back to the internment camp where he was as a child, as an adult. And there was no remnants of it left except for the cemetery. And uh, he saw so many headstones that just said, baby with their last name on it, baby, with their last name on it. So very sad, very horrible things happen there. Yeah. Um, I know it was really hard living and the guards were really nasty to them and it was really bad. I mean, I wasn't there firsthand. And of course, there's not going to be articles bragging about how horrible of a society we are, but um, we still suck. But we're better now, I think. I hope. We're getting there. (laughs) For a little while after 9-11, I was really afraid that they were going to start doing that for Arab Americans, uh, 
you know, you heard a lot of people talking about that, but luckily it didn't happen. Well, I know that a lot of um, Muslim or not even Muslim, but anyone who looked Arab in any way, shape or form um, or had a name similar to that, like got flagged at the airport. I, I recall a lot of stories on the news of people who used to be friends that weren't friends anymore and lots of shaming, whether it be graffitiing or it was kind of similar to the way it was now, but not as a majority thing. I mean, it wasn't our country as a whole attacking the Muslim community. It was more so individuals and it didn't last as long. This lasted two and a half years, the internment camps, two and a half years. It took us to realize that that was a silly move. What would have happened if Italy or France or England attacked us? Would we just lock up ourselves? That's a good question. I mean, during the Revolutionary War, we weren't locking up everybody that immigrated from England or else we'd lose, I think. <laughs> I don't know. I don't That's a really good question because... It was uh, the first example, I think, of racial profiling. I mean, you look like you could be the enemy, so I'm going to lock you up before you have a chance to attack me, even though you're an innocent guy just trying to make a living for your family. Well, like, would you say that our country is very white-minded? How, how would I say that? I mean, because if you look at like Italians or Europeans as a whole, if if a European country were to attack us, I would say that they wouldn't look at it as a race issue, even though, or a nationality issue, even though they're a different nation, just like if Japan attacked us, it would be a race thing. We would attack the Japanese, but if England attacked us, it, we wouldn't attack the English people. You know, like we wouldn't be like, you have a British accent, we hate you. It wouldn't be like that. I don't. I really don't think it would. No. So again, it's just plain and simple racism. Yeah. I wonder where that comes from. Like, I wonder instinctually in our in our brains, like what makes us like that? Because I, we're not born that way. If you look at little kids play, they don't care what color you are or anything like that. So who started? Who started that? I have a theory about that, and I will elaborate that in the football episode. Okay. I guess we can't talk about everything in one episode. No, but uh, we're doing good so far, I think. So two and a half years, they were put into camps and then let go like, whoops, we're sorry. (laughs) It's just crazy. It blows my mind to think of something like that happening in our country. It really is unfathomable that this actually occurred in our country. And obviously the effects were fizzled out by the time we got to 1953, but there were still angry war veterans attacking the Japanese Americans. He didn't know her and just looked at her face and discriminated against her for it because he had some PTSD going on. He had some problem. I don't know what it was. Um, Okay, going back to the Americanization of Machiko, the episode, I noticed uh, at the beginning of this episode, uh, Sam is definitely better and better at figuring out who he is, where he is, when he is. He says that and then he forgets his wife. Well, he had no idea. But it was funny because he's like, I'm good at this. I'm doing great. And then he forgets his wife at the bus stop. That's a perfect setup punchline. Yeah. And I love how Machiko is like, I'm looking for a husband. I mean, my husband. husband. (laughs) Because I think for a second, the cop was like, really? (laughs) You came to America to look for a husband. Wonderful. So we talked a little bit earlier about this. Uh, Naomi, she just seemed like a uh, bad person. I did not like her and Charlie's Sam's thing in this episode. I didn't I didn't like her at all. So. Uh, so job well done by the actress. Yeah, good job. But did it annoy you the hay scene where Sam was not his normal self? I, I mean, 
normally if he's like married look at the scene with him on the train with his new bride he was more restraining with her than he was with the chick he's cheating on his wife with in this episode i mean he was like no please don't stop get off me what are you doing i mean like dude push her off you throw her off the hay i mean really and al was like really (laughs) yeah even al was giving him crap about that you call me a sleaze bag look at you (laughs) i think two things one is uh for the episode and for them to get caught together it it had to be delayed and not as standoffish and uh for a quantum leap universe reason maybe because of the brain swiss cheesing maybe it was part charlie too right but Oh, it just, I think you rewound it again and again. And I was like, I hate this part so much. Just keep going. Because Naomi is so mean and nasty and Machiko is so nice that I just hated this part. It might be due to racism because she was saying, well, that's not real. Yeah. But I think there just are girls like that. (laughs) And then (laughs) I don't take no for an answer. And then I fell down and that's how my blouse came wide open and. Yeah, usually when I fall, my shirt just falls off. I don't know. Like, yeah. <laughs> it does. Well, what's funny is the dad was like, I knew there was a reasonable explanation. He was totally being sarcastic. Yeah, and the reverend was really cool about the whole situation. Well, and and that was just to show that Lenore was even more of a jerk. Right, Lenore was the only one with the problem. If she was cool, everybody else would have been cool. Now, do you think that the community really ostracized her daughter, or do you think that was all in her head? Wow, I didn't think about that. It could have been all in her head because this whole Machiko thing was all in her head because nobody seemed to care. Everybody was very nice to her except Rusty, of course. Yeah, but she called the mayor fat and they didn't. They were like, oh, oh uh, yeah. uh, like that was a pretty bad slip up. But it wasn't one. It wasn't her fault. But I mean, they didn't attack her for that. Someone did call Lenore. Right. As like a gossipy thing. But do you really think that she wasn't accepted by the community? I mean, the community seems pretty nice. Well, now that you say that, I think uh, most of it was probably in her head. And as always, there's always that vocal minority that maybe have a certain opinion, but there's very few people that have that opinion, but make their opinion heard louder than people who don't share that opinion. Right. The first time I saw this episode, I, I didn't realize that. But I think that the second time, they were so accepting of Machiko that I don't think that they would have batted an eye at, at the pregnancy. I mean, Machiko is like shrieking and the reverend was like, no, 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 it's fine. We're cool. We're going to go home. No big deal. I mean, he even made a joke. Oh, she looks like she's up and well. I mean, it, it just doesn't seem like a society that would have ostracized her daughter. Also a possibility everybody's still being nice to Lenore because of what happened to Eileen. Maybe. I don't know if they would have had, maybe, but... But they seemed genuinely nice, the whole town. Right. They really did. So at this point, I think it's all in Lenore's head. That makes it even worse. Yeah. Uh, You know, I can't speak to losing a daughter to suicide and how that might make you crazy. So, you know, she made a mistake in parenting and it cost her daughter her life. Yeah. So she's torturing herself and going crazy every day because of it. Yes, in part, it's her fault. I could understand her reasons for being crazy. Right. But she was the one who made it all up in her head before her daughter died. Right. So then she redeemed herself at the end of the episode. I mean, that's what's important is that she's trying to work on her relationship with her son and new daughter-in-law. I love that ending. I really did. I I agree. I really like the little setup and callback. Lenore shaking the bugs off of the flowers. And then later on Machiko, when she picks the flowers, she shakes the bugs off. 
it shows me that if Lenore didn't have this problem with Machiko being Japanese, that they would have gotten along maybe. Yeah, because they're like-minded and they both care for Charlie. That that That's a thing that I think is very important, that you need to come together with your, your in-laws because your ultimate goal is to love that person you know i mean the mother obviously cared for charlie and machiko obviously cared for charlie so they should have a common goal in keeping charlie happy anyway machiko was really trying as well she was she brought them gifts um she washed the floor she made rice all these nice things and she's uh going why is this crazy lady not liking anything i'm doing to trying to help out i think the washing of the floor and helping out in the house was an insult to lenore saying that she wasn't good enough. Me, I'd be like, thank you. Yeah, but you're a guy. Like if (laughs) if someone were to come into my house and say, hey, your floor's not clean enough. I'm going to clean your floor. That's how I would see it. Even though she was trying to help, but Lenore was making breakfast, she was making oatmeal grits. That's something I was wondering about. How did Lenore not notice that Machiko was making rice when she was cooking all these other things at the same time? Yeah, I don't don't know the answer to that. That's a little continuity thing. Yeah, um... But I think that Lenore was saying like, no, this is my way and uh, don't insult my skill by trying to impose your traditions, you know? Lenore was like, did you see how Machiko was eating crackers over there in the corner? She just sitting there eating crackers. Can you believe that? (laughs) Sitting there eating crackers like she owns the place. Exactly. I really enjoyed the scene when Sam and Machiko were outside on the stairs and talking. And that little joke that Machiko made when Sam said that Henry worked a long time and now he's retired. And Machiko says, all men in Japan must be retired. Does that mean that that's because all the women serve the men? I think so. <laughs> and, and a bunch of men were lazy. Yeah, that's funny. I, I liked her sense of humor. And I liked. I also liked the moment when she was picking flowers and Sam realized that, that he didn't want her to blend in with the other daisies. She said, far away, all daisies are alike together. They make a beautiful garden. But if you look close, you can see a little difference in each one and remember its beauty a lifetime. Yeah, that was, that was a very nice quote. Very nice. But it also applied to her. So it was perfect writing. Yeah, like he wanted her to be unique, yet fit in to the society enough to be accepted, but still have her uniqueness that made her her. I liked how after their little conversation, uh, Machko wanted to learn to drive. So Sam teaches her how to drive. And we won't talk too much about this, but again, I noticed no seatbelts. Always no seatbelts. It was nice to see the actors in the car driving. You know, usually you see a driver and it kind of looks like the person driving, but it's not. But it was actually them. So that was nice to see. So Rusty writes Jap go home on the side of his truck. He's just standing right there being proud of himself, watching how horrible Machiko feels when she sees this. Yeah, he's just watching, like all proud of himself. Like he has this cocky look in his eyes like, yep. I did that. That was the moment you hate the guy, I think. Yeah. That's the moment where you say, okay, this is the villain. And the ironic thing is that's where they were heading anyway. They were going home. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think that's what he meant by home. Oh. So uh, what about Lenore lying to everybody about them being sick from the Japanese food? Um, I like that her husband gave her the death glare for that. She's obviously trying to hide them because she's the only one that's ashamed. But I like that her husband looked at her like, you're ridiculous. Lenore was so upset she didn't even go to the picnic. I, I don't even... Uh, but, like, I, I don't get it. I don't get why she's so crazy about it. Sam had broken up with Naomi for Charlie before the picnic, and she seemed to understand it was over, but then she was really mean to Machigo at the picnic, making her all look like a clown almost with the makeup and uh, setting her up to fail. Yeah, revenge. 
she was mad that's what that's what you do when uh you're not picked you harass the other girl make her look bad i guess girls are evil (laughs) so this is the second time we see baseball in quantum leap that i know of i'm thinking one of the writers was a fan of baseball yeah yeah i mean it's an american pastime right the american pastime is that what i think so so uh they're heading home from the picnic and a storm is a brewing and it always seems like in these midwest farm towns that there's always a storm coming it's just like every time there's a fire someone's trapped under a piece of wood it's just like the it's it's the setup it's a thing maybe it's not real maybe just somebody saw wizard of oz a long time ago and said you know what we'll do that from now on i think that it's just a common thing there and it sets it up for a little bit more dramatic if she just stormed off it would have been one thing, but she stormed off in the middle of a tornado. So that was even worse that Lenore pushed her out in the middle of a storm. That was pretty cold. She almost kind of half realized what she was doing after Sam came in and said, where's Machiko? And she was like, I don't know. She's probably running down the street half naked. No, I think that she felt bad a little tiny teensy weensy bit when her husband said, you did this. But she was also kind of mad, like, how dare you not side with me? I think that was the, the feeling she was fighting with. You're always supposed to side with your spouse, but when they're that wrong about something like that, I think you need to have a discussion. You still need to advocate for your child. You know, Charlie is their kid. True. So, and uh, Machiko is his daughter-in-law. Right. I'm, I'm glad that she came around in the end, though. I'm glad that it, it worked out. Why did they need to get married in America again? Is that something back then that wasn't legal or like people just didn't think it was real because it happened in another country? I think one, to have his parents there to celebrate and two, as a this is real. Like, I don't think it was necessary, but I think it was Charlie's way of saying, you know, this is real and this is what we're going to do. And also, I'm sure in the religious standpoint, it was good to have it go through their church you know, like as a thing for his mom more than anything else. And of course, it sets up the nice ending. Yeah. I was scared for Machiko when she got picked up by Rusty. I was like, don't get in the truck. Don't get in the truck. She got in the truck. Yeah, but she's like the little innocent puppy dog. I mean, she's was very trusting. And I think after she got in the car, she realized not a good idea. But did she realize, isn't that the guy that was standing behind me that wrote that on the truck? Oh, yeah, I think it once she got in the car, but I don't think she realized before she got. Well, no, when he opened the door, I think she realized and he's like, just get in. But I think maybe she was scared of the tornado, too, and weighed her options. She seemed petrified while he was driving. Yeah. So let me get this straight. The plan was he was going to cut off her arm. Because he got his arm ruined in the war. So he couldn't play professional baseball anymore. So it was her fault because... She happens to be of Japanese ancestry. So with some twisted prejudice, it was her fault that his arm wasn't good enough for baseball anymore. Well, then Al gets Sam to come to the rescue. You see Al standing in the middle of the car. Great special effects, first of all. And then uh, while he's standing there in the close-up shot, I'm thinking they either took out the engine from the car or there's just a huge spot by the engine that Al could stand in. Not sure, but they did a great job with it. Yeah, um... I was wondering the first time, like, is he standing in the middle of the car? Because the shot of him, of Sam's perspective of him, looked so awesomely real. It was really cool. Uh, They're getting better and better with all that kind of stuff. Yeah, this season is a lot better than the last season. But as special effects go, there's always a learning curve and they always get better. So Sam comes to the rescue of Machiko and I was like, yeah, save your wife, Sam, save your wife. And he did. And there was like a old fashioned brawl, fisticuffs, knock down, drag out fight. Look like in a tool shed. That seemed very dangerous. Yeah, the guy was very irrationally violent. 
The first time I was convinced like Sam was going to accidentally push Rusty into a crowbar or something, but still very dangerous. And then Rusty picks up what most people think are rocks, but I don't know. Is it car parts? It seemed like car parts too. And, um, you know, he threw them at Machko and took out a mirror, took out a headlight and then beamed her right in the head. Yeah, that's pretty rough. And see, I, I think we tried to freeze frame it and there's really no way to tell what it was, but he probably didn't have rocks laying around inside the garage. And uh, it just shows you the escalation of hatred and what he's doing. He's going from, you know, just bumping in and having an attitude and giving him a look to graffiti, to kidnapping, attempted severing, to stoning her. But yeah, basically. I mean, uh, it really escalated. And it, I think that's a good method in teaching when you have a parable, when you're trying to tell a moral lesson like this of, you know, don't hate because look what it can lead to. Because, uh, you know, fear leads to anger and anger leads to hate and hate leads to suffering. Yoda. Yes. Wise man. Wise puppet. <laughs> wise creature. But if you're following along and say somebody's at home that's mildly racist and maybe, yeah, give them a hard time. Yeah, you can you can write stuff on their truck. And then, I don't know if I'd knock them down. Definitely wouldn't try to cut off her arm. He just hit her in the head. That's wrong. See, and that's the moment that somebody learns something. Hopefully. Hopefully. But I'm thinking. Well, like I said before, you know, they'll be like, well, I kind of agreed with his opinions, but he took it too far. Exactly. And uh, I just, great storytelling, great episode. This is one of my favorites so far. I really enjoyed it. I will watch it again and again. Now we get to the part where Machko's in the hospital. And uh, this last time that I watched the episode, I actually saw a cop taking a statement or signing a paper in the background of the hospital. And I was like, ah, good. Rusty got arrested. So that was very satisfying for me, like closure on that. Hopefully. If, hopefully. But it, it's an indication. But yeah. the first few times I watched the episode, I really didn't think that anything was resolved and happened to Rusty. So when I saw that, I was happy this last time I watched it. I think the fourth time. Well, the cop in the beginning of the episode knew that Machiko was a sweet, innocent, you know, person like he helped her in the beginning so obviously the police force wasn't really up for violence towards her great job by the actor who played rusty by the way patrick massett which is actually now a producer for films and television and uh he did a lot of things you would notice uh for me he did uh caprica the tv series and uh he was a good actor just uh making you hate him yeah, he did really good. He had to channel that anger from somewhere. I wonder if it's hard for an actor to be that bad of a bad guy, or is it just another part? Something it'd be interesting to find out. I think that that's a huge part of acting, to have to get into the extreme roles where you're extremely upset or you're extremely angry. You know, it takes a lot. So this brings us to the ending of the Americanization of Machiko, and I wanted to talk about that. I still don't understand. Lenore says, I can't do for her what I couldn't do for Eileen. So because she wasn't there for Eileen, she doesn't want to be there for Machiko. Well, because she feels that Machiko isn't more important than her own daughter. So how, why would she do something for Machiko that she couldn't do for Eileen? Again, not learning a lesson from the past. Right. So that confused me for quite a while. I'm, and it kind of still does. See, I, I don't know because I don't share her opinion. So I don't. I'm glad she learned her lesson. That's all I'll say. At the end, she did. Yeah. So uh, Sam was successful. Mission completed. Um, he was a little worried about having to marry Machiko. Right. But he did fine. Yeah, it was good. Uh, great episode. Final thoughts on this episode, Heather? It was good. They, they did good on the racist issue and the, all the issues actually in this episode and not caring what other people think about you. I, I, they did really good. I like this one. 
I really enjoyed it. For me, this is what Quantum Leap is. Episodes like this, The Color of Truth, upcoming episodes, I mean, they're really good. I really enjoyed all the actors. And as promised, we have an interview with Kay Callen. We are pleased today to have with us a legend of stage and screen, Miss Kay Callen. Callen's professional career began at Margot Jones Theater in her hometown of Dallas, and she has continued through regional, off-Broadway, Broadway, films, and television. Her big break came with her first film role, Joe. Her portrayal of Peter Boyle's mousy wife brought her glowing reviews in the New York Times. A voting member of both the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences and the Academy of Television Arts and Sciences, Callan is also a past member of the board of directors of the Screen Actors Guild. Her most visible television role was playing Superman's mom in the ABC hit comedy Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman. A regular on four television series and a guest star on scores of episodes, Callan has played a demented Miss Daisy for Tyler Perry on Meet the Browns and a crime boss on The Mentalist. But of course, Quantum Leap fans know her as Lenore McKenzie from the Americanization of Machiko. How are you, Miss Callan? I'm just fine, thank you. I'm happy to hear from you. I really enjoyed this episode, and uh, you played a really good part in it. Could you uh, tell us a little bit about the whole experience of filming Quantum Leap? Oh, golly, it was a really long time ago. Uh, I remember we shot it over at Universal, uh, and I remember... um, fondly how what a lovely person Scott was uh, and everybody in, involved with it was just terrific and the other thing is that I'm always amazed at people on the street who come up I mean this is however many years later come up to me and remember that episode and can quote things from it that I can't even quote um, but it was it was a it was a very interesting thing to film do you remember Anything about your character? Like, was it difficult to play maybe a little bit of a racist or at least uh, someone struggling with uh, the guilt of not helping her daughter so she eventually committed suicide? Well, um, of course, all of the all of the above. Um, but, you know, as actors, our whole job is to be able to go to all these places and play these things. And as far as the racist element of it, um, probably we all know people who are like this that we go, oh my goodness, and we kind of absorb, you know, what that's like and have the ability to kind of play that back to someone and those feelings. You know, she was filled with so many different emotions, you know, that her son was back, that she'd lost her daughter, that her son was back, and now she's kind of lost her son to this woman who is somebody. And in that particular time, you know, we were... Uh, the Japanese people were, you know, up in concentration camps. They didn't call them that, but in camps up, you know, in Northern California, they'd all been, you know, taken away from regular life. And so I think that there was a lot of prejudice, you know, the same kind of prejudice that exists today for various groups. So um, there was that, and and it was a pleasure to play the part where she finally comes to a place where she understands that she was wrong and she makes the right moves. I originally saw this episode when it first aired and I was uh, probably a young teenager and the ending of that really uh, touched my heart, seeing your character in a kimono at the end. Yeah, it was it was fun to wear that kimono too. And yeah. you know what? I don't believe, 
I have seen that episode since you know, since I saw it on television when we did it. You know, back in those days, we didn't have uh, recording ability to you know keep a copy of something and save it. Uh, and I don't know whether I, I don't remember having seen it someplace. You know where I could have recorded it or gotten a copy of it. So I haven't seen it way since that time. It's a pretty good episode. It really holds up. Uh, I think it's out on DVD and it's on Netflix and all that stuff. Yeah, I'll have to I'll have to Netflix that and take a look at it myself. I'm sure a lot of listeners would like to know a little bit about your experience on Lois and Clark: The New Adventures of Superman. Uh, well, uh, not a not a bad moment. Um, I uh, as a matter of fact, I've been talking a lot about Lois and Clark lately because it's. It's 20 years since we did Lois and Clark, and it's like the 75th year of Superman. And so there have been a lot of um, press and, and online things about that. And uh, I actually, it's so interesting that you asked that, because tomorrow I am having lunch with Deborah Joy Levine, who created the show, and Bob Butler, who directed our pilot, um, so it's it's not all lost down in history, you know. We're still all talking to each other and and reminiscing about oh those days. You are still on television today in all kinds of television shows. Uh, a lot of my favorites, like How I Met Your Mother, that was a very funny part you did. That was a wonderful thing I got to do. It was just so much fun, and that show, that particular show, plays so much. What was your experience like on uh, Star Trek: Deep Space Nine? I'm a big Star Trek fan, and. Uh, I probably first recognized you from that. Well, actually, that was probably the most interesting story of all because I had to have a prosthetic for that. And so I had to go in, you know, on a particular day and, you know, they put that cast on you, which I withstood a lot better in those days than I do these days because I can't remember what I worked on. Oh, I guess when I was on Nip Tuck, they did another one and I had to be under that stuff. And it's, it's quite an ordeal. But anyway, so we, they did that, and so that means that every morning you would come to work, you know, at 5 in the morning, and it was a long time that they put that on you, and then at night you might finish at 10 at night, and they've already built another hour in for them to take it off. And when we first started shooting it, I was like, oh, my God, this is so interesting. How interesting this is. Oh, this is so much fun. And then by the by the last day that I was shooting, it was like, oh, my goodness, the poor people who are on this show every day and have to put all this stuff on. I mean, that's that's a very big deal. It's a very big deal. Yeah, uh, from what I understand, you get to a point where you just can't wear it any longer. Well, I think you just, you know, I just, one would have, one would have thought before they were on that show, before I was on that show, oh, wouldn't it be great to have a job on this every day? And it was like, no, it really wouldn't be. <laughs> It's just, you know, you're there, you never see the sun. You know, you get there before the sun comes up, and you leave way after it's down, and you've spent all this time in makeup. And if it were a movie, you know that there's an end date, but if it's a popular television series, that's not the way it goes. Besides being an accomplished actress, you're also an author. Uh, Yes, I have a, a series of books for actors, writers, and directors about how to get work in the business. They're marketing books. They they don't tell you how to act, write, or direct, but once you know how to do that, and now you're, you know, most people are like, well, I can figure out how you do that, but how do you ever get a job? So I did a lot of research, and so I have books for those folks. I saw your uh, film on uh, your books in the bookstore. That was oh, yes, re- right, right. Uh, I enjoyed doing that, and uh, Suzanne uh, 
Ky- Kylie, who is in it with me, uh, she's a young actress that I had known, and I asked her to be in it with me, and she gave me the two biggest laughs in it, so I gave her co-writing credit because she's, she's just a brilliant comedian and writer, and I'm so happy that she did that with me. If anybody's interested in these books, uh, some of the titles are The Los Angeles Agents Book, How to Sell Yourself as an Actor, The Script is Finished, Now What Do I Do?, and among many others. And uh, where can they find copies of that? Uh, well, they're at bookstores, but also they can go to kcallen.com, uh, and there'll be a whole page with all the books, and you can see what book and what they're about and order one if you want to. But they're also at Barnes & Noble and like that. My mom actually wanted me to uh, tell you that you were on her favorite episode of All in the Family. Oh, that was a wonderful episode. What a... What a gift that I got to do that. Um, that is a, an episode that has changed many lives. That was quite a groundbreaking episode in its day because it was back to prejudice. It was about uh, gay prejudice. And it was right when Anita Bryant, for those people who are old enough to know who that was, who was a big orange juice spokesman and a very, and maybe she'd been a big singer or something. I think that's why she was a celebrity and did that. And anyway, she'd come out with this big campaign against school teachers, any school teachers being gay or whatever. And so that was the whole theme of this had to do with that. And uh, I've had people stop me all over the world um, and all these years later and say, that episode changed my life. You know, I was like 10 years old and my parents, you know, were very prejudiced about gay people and I dare not say who I was. And then after that episode, my dad was like, well, gosh, I guess they're, they're just regular people. And, and it, it's, it was a wonderful show. They won Emmys for it and well-deserved and, and so happy to have been a part of that. I watched it a few days ago, and it still holds up really well. And I think it's still relevant for uh, today's times. There's still a lot of uh, prejudiced people out there that just don't get it. Yes, there are. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, although, as, you, as this guy said, you know, it, it really changed his parents' viewpoint. But I think people who are in their bones so prejudiced, I don't know what's going to change that. Unless, you know, somebody in their family turns out to be gay, and then they have to deal with it. Although sometimes, you know, the person in your family is gay, and you don't deal with it. You just never speak to them again. So. Well, hopefully shows like uh, that episode of All in the Family and uh, many episodes of Quantum Leap uh, might yeah. might educate people or at least get them thinking about their beliefs. Yeah, hopefully. I mean, there has been so much change over these years, you know, in so many areas, you know, gay and the whole uh, African-American experience and everything. That, yeah, Although there's a lot of, as you say, a lot of folks who who are still prejudiced and so forth, but there has been a lot of, a lot of progress. Probably due in part a lot to uh, people seeing stuff like this and uh, being able to talk about it and not just keeping quiet on the subject. Yes, uh, I, I think that's, and the other thing is, and so important, is people who are not prejudiced having the courage to speak up when they're talking to their friend, who it turns out is prejudiced, instead of just being quiet and just letting it go by, you know, people who have the courage to to speak up and say, well, hey, what are you talking about? And I don't feel that way. I think that makes a big difference. I like that. That makes a lot of sense. And I think that's why everything seems to be getting better, I hope. Well, I re- 
remember uh, when Martin Luther King was assassinated, and I was living in Norman, Oklahoma at the time, and it was, and I had been in Dallas when Kennedy was assassinated. And, but when Martin Luther King was assassinated, I remember writing an editorial to the newspaper there saying, you know, that I had been at parties where bigoted people would, you know, take off against the, the black community. And I would just, you know, not want to make fuss and et cetera and just kind of blend into the woodwork. And I just said, this will never happen again. You know, I'm never going to just stand there when somebody is saying something and not speak up. Because when you don't speak up, you're just nodding assent. That they just assume you agree. Very true and very uh, brave to do that also, especially back then. Well, you know, it's it's still always hard to be in a group where everybody else says yes and you're saying no or vice versa. You were uh, born in Dallas, Texas, right? I was. So, I was. like you and said— my kids were all born there, too, so— although we've been, you know, gone from there for many years. Being in Dallas or Texas when the president got assassinated, what was that like for you? Oh, well, it was a horrible day for Dallas. Uh, couldn't believe it. Although, um, at that point in time, Dallas was... Well, Adlai Stevenson had been there some months before, and he'd been, you know, how people are holding placards, this thing signs, you know, that say whatever, and somebody had hit him on the head with one of those signs. And there were those of us who were uneasy and did not think it was a good idea for Kennedy to come because it was just very you know, very hateful at that time. And and so, I mean, we left shortly after that. I was happy to move away. I, I mean, I've been back since then, and I love Dallas, and my family is there, but it was a dark time. Such a horrible thing would happen. Nothing like that had ever happened on U.S. soil. You just can't believe that. Yeah, it still affects people to this day, and it happened over 50 years ago now. Yeah. Quantum Leap actually does a two-part episode dealing with the assassination of Kennedy. Did you ever see that? I think I did, but my memory is totally dim on it on this day. I don't remember anything about it. A lot of people might remember you from Joe. Could you tell us a little bit about the movie from 1970? Well, that was a long time ago. You're saying all my oldest credits. Uh, that was another movie about prejudice. Uh, and that was a very exciting thing that happened. I was living in New York then. Um, I got this part in this movie that Everybody associated with it thought, well, this is a movie no one is ever going to see because it was an, an independent movie that cost, you know, about 25 cents to make. And I think we each got paid a nickel. Uh, but um, the movie came out, and the movie was successful. But almost simultaneously, I don't know whether you remember this, uh, the Kent State Massacre happened, which mirrored the events in the film, and so then the film really took off. As frequently happens, a movie comes out, and then in a short period of time, something will happen in the real world that is the same thing, and then it really catches fire. And that certainly happened in that film, which was um, the story of uh, Peter Boyle. The, the, he became a big star in that movie, a hard hat who, uh, and it was during... Um, you know, the 70s when, you know, the East Village and hippies and love, peace, make make love, not not war, all that whole thing was happening. He was, he was very prejudiced and against the youth and against, you know, the hippies and so forth. And Susan Sarandon, it was her first film, and, and she became a star out of it, or certainly well on her way to her career. And uh, so it was, it was a pretty thrilling movie for all of us. 
very interesting experience. Very hard to watch at times, especially uh, Peter Boyle in the bar going on and on about yeah. different racism yeah. things. But you know, it's important. Yeah. Important. And though. he really, he really um, wrote a lot of that. He he was somebody who had been in Second City in Chicago, and he was a great improviser. And kind of that character um, was a character that he kind of had in his pocket, that belligerent, you know, bigoted guy. And so the movie was originally called The Gap, as in The Generation Gap, and it was more centered on Susan and her father, the the advertising guy played by Dennis Patrick. But then when they cut it all together and they saw what they had in this performance with Peter, then the whole movie changed focus and it became Joe. And, uh, And it would not have been the success it was had they not refocused it that way. Um, very good movie. Uh, if you haven't seen it, you should for our listeners. Um, uh, most recently you've been working on getting on the TV series. You play Susan Dayward. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Poor Susan Dayward who came into the hospital for a routine operation on her niece and she was a runner and she was being proactive to make things better. And she left in a wheelchair and will never walk again. Will never run again. She can walk sometime, but not run. What part do you get recognized for the most? I think probably Superman's mom. Uh, certainly when somebody stops me on the street and says, I know you, I know you. I try never to, I try to just say, oh, well, yeah, I've done a lot of stuff. And they'll say, well, what? And I'll say, oh, please, you know, I'll start naming things and you'll say no, no, no. And then pretty soon we'll both feel really stupid. <laughs> but I will usually start off with, well, I was in a series 20 years ago. I played Superman's mom. And they'll go, oh, yeah. But a lot of people recognize me from a series I did for Tyler Perry. Meet the Browns, that's what it was called. People recognize me from that, which is surprising to me, because I wore all kinds of wigs, and I played this um, old big star who's in this retirement home, uh, and I'm, I'm, it's kind of like a Norma Desmond type. I'm constantly caught in all of my old movies and, you know, doing movie lines. And, oh, my God, I had the most wonderful wardrobe. I had all these clothes from, like, the 40s that they had, you know, that I got to wear. And I just come into another into another uh, scene for no particular reason, you know, in a ball gown or something. <laughs> it was, so I'm always surprised when people recognize me from that. Uh, I did about 20 episodes of, of that show so a lot of people recognize me from that i've not seen that one but it sounds good i want to check it out uh it, 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 it was uh i wasn't uh, i was on the first couple of seasons and then not on anymore but I, I loved the part i had i got to wear great clothes and be totally outrageous and i did an episode on there with rue mcclanahan you should uh youtube it or see if you can find that someplace because that was a really good episode which she played my sister Oh, wow. That would be good. I'm going to check yeah. that one out. Uh, so many parts you've had deal with issues like, uh, you know, gay or lesbian, racism, different things like that. Do you search those parts out or it just happen to come along? Oh, I think that just happens. You know, they, they got, you know, writers are looking for something interesting to write about, looking for conflict. And, um, you know, so I've, so I've gotten some of those. But, you know, when I was on the closer, I mean, so many things that haven't been like that. It's just that some of some really, really good ones have been. I'm doing a play right now that's in Los Angeles, so I don't know, you know, how many of your uh, listeners are from Los Angeles called yeah. RX, as in prescription. 
and it's at a small theater called The Lost Studio, and we play until the end of February. Ooh, I wish I lived there. I could check it out. Where do you live? Uh, Southwest Florida. Florida. Well, yeah, that would be quite a trek for you to come here for that. A little bit. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you so much for talking with me today. It was a real honor, and, uh, and uh, thank you so much. Thank you so much. It was a real pleasure. Fun to talk about Quantum Leap again. You know, brings a bunch of stuff up to my brain that I'd forgotten about. That was a great interview with Kay Callen. It was amazing to talk to her, and it's 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 amazing to just sit and watch an episode of television and then a few days later be talking to the person that was on that episode and played in a very important character in the episode. Yeah, she seemed like a really cool person to talk to and very nice. Very nice. Uh, couldn't have been more accommodating. It's cool that she, you know, remembers the internment camps and stuff like that, too. It's crazy to think back that we had that history. So to talk to someone who was there and she could bring that into the episode, you know. Uh, very recent history. Yeah, in the grand scheme of things. Right. And if you like interviews, we have another exciting interview scheduled for next episode, so stay tuned for that. Yeah, I'm really excited about next time. A little bit, a little bit. Are you nervous? Oh, yeah. <laughs> kind, kind of a big deal. Yeah. You guys are dying to know, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> and we have some feedback. When I asked on Facebook, do you think when Al said you didn't the first time, do you think he was joking or do you think it was a slip of the tongue? I also asked, do you enjoy the messages and meanings in the episode, like the Americanization of Machiko, and have you learned or even changed your opinions or beliefs because of them? Hayden McQueenie said, I think Al definitely did slip up, and I thought this even the first time I watched the episode. He definitely did a good job trying to pass it off as a joke, and with Sam's memory full of holes, he got away with it. But throughout the series, to me, he's always seemed like the kind of person who will speak his mind first and then think it over later, even though he does a good job concealing information when he has to. As for the themes of the episode, the ones that really stick out to me are to not dwell on the past. Life goes on. Seek forgiveness and forgive others and yourself. Derek Carter said, Don't forget, Al and Sam were best friends before he even made the initial leap. So, of course, Al wants to help him fill in the holes, but can't. He gets away with it at times. Timothy Devereaux answered question two. It's a loaded question. I will say that the reaction from the bitter war veteran towards Machiko and Sam's character was unrealistic. I met several vets who fought in World War II in Korea, but a lot of their prejudices were passive rather than aggressive. For example, one man I know has never bought a Japanese car because of his combat experience. Also, I wish it would have been in Japan and showed Sam dealing with pushback from Machiko's family and friends. Considering it was right after the war, I'm sure this marriage would have upset a number of people overseas. Being viewed as a conquering force who is adding insult to injury in the eyes of many Japanese citizens by taking a celestial bride with him. I have encountered such things myself also. My father was a really great man, but he never bought a Japanese car for the same reason. And I tried to tell him, you know, it's all one world, we're all one people. And he kept telling me, you weren't there, son. Well, it must have been pretty bad. Yeah, I wasn't there, so I really don't know. Yeah, me neither. David Corey said, I would like to see this turned into a movie. Me too. Would you go see that opening day? Of course I would. If they need uh, technical advisors, <laughs> uh, we're putting our hat in the ring. If they need catering, we're also putting our hat in the ring. <laughs> anything. If you need anything, we're, we're here. Best boy. I'll do it. I don't know what it is, but I'll do it. Juan Morrow answers the second question. 
I don't think that I've changed any opinions due to this episode, as I was very young when it first came out. But I do think that as a whole, many of the episodes of Quantum Leap have helped shape my adulthood as I rewatched them through the years. It really did influence me growing up, and I've said it repeatedly, and I'm sure I'll say it a bunch more times. Uh, you know, this really helps develop a good moral compass. And uh, we have other comments on Facebook that we thought we'd like to share with you. Stephen Oliver says, Watch it with an open mind. There's a bigger message, and it can teach you a few things about the world around you today. Most Quantum Leap episodes have some sort of message. You just have to look for them. I agree, and that's why we're doing the show. Claire Lafar says, There's a Quantum Leap podcast. My life is complete. Just added every episode onto my iPod. That should keep me entertained at the office tomorrow. I'm glad she's happy about that. Hopefully uh, she sends in some feedback and we find out if she likes it or not. Hi, Claire. Hello, Claire. Nice to have you aboard. Welcome. And uh, I've said the same thing, downloading our own podcast. (laughs) And uh, Hayden McQueenie also had some other stuff to say. I always love to hear what Hayden has to say. Me too. Hey, hey, it's discussion day. I just wanted to address a couple of things that were said in the last episode. First of all, Heather said she got the impression that what everyone else is seeing is what's really there, and we're only seeing Sam's body as a convenience to the viewers. This is actually not true. It is Sam's body leaping around, not just his mind or soul, and what everyone else sees is just a manifestation of the Leapy's physical aura. There is a great deal of evidence to support this, but it all comes from future episodes, so I won't elaborate on it. Let's just say there are times when Sam does things that he wouldn't be able to do if his mind was trapped in the body of the Leapy and not his own. Just as an example, having his own strength in the body of someone much weaker. Also, occasionally, some people are able to see how things really are. Some can see Sam through the Leapy's aura and also interact with Al. This would only be possible if it really is Sam's body in there. Also, Heather asked if Al sees Sam as Sam or the Leapy. While Albie is correct that at this stage Al sees the Leapy's aura, this will not always be the case. There's going to be a leap very soon, in fact, which causes Al a great deal of distress, thus prompting the project to tweak Sam and Al's neural link so that Al can see Sam as Sam. Just to prove this, as an example, in the future there will be an extremely funny episode in which Al describes Sam as looking like Scarlett O'Hara on steroids. I really love how the project evolves over time. The statement, necessity is the mother of invention, really fits. I hope that wasn't too spoilery. I tried to provide evidence while being as vague as possible. I can think of two instances where he's correct when he's talking about Sam being in someone weaker than himself. So uh, that makes a lot of sense. It's very confusing for me still, but he seems to have studied this a lot more than I have. So I guess he'll get the job of technical advisor maybe on the film and uh, we can still do catering or best boy. I feel like he's that one friend who wants to tell you the ending of every movie, but he just can't. He's like, you just have to watch it. You know, you always have that one friend that's like, but I feel like he just wants to tell me everything, which is cool. Like, I'm glad that he's explaining everything. But at the same time, I'm like, I don't want to know, but I like it. I don't know. Yeah, it's it's hard to explain. <laughs> but I, I like that he explains everything, too, because it's cool. We have like a little decoder for our, our questions. And it's good to have checks and balances here because I'm not an expert by any means. I've seen it. I've seen Quantum Leap once through when it originally aired and then some in syndication. So I'm not an expert. I'm just a fan enjoying it as I go. Yeah, this is my first time. So I have, I I mean, I'm no expert either. I'm the newbie here. But um, it's hard because I have no idea where it's going to go. It goes in some pretty cool places. It's, It's not a predictable series. I have no idea what the next episode will be until I see the preview for the next episode. So I I honestly past the next episode, I have no idea what's going on. (laughs) That's awesome. Thank you, Hayden, for your feedback. That was pretty cool. 
Hallie Hare tagged her friends in this post so they would see it. What? Catherine Fred? Facebook finally got a suggestion totally right. That is awesome. You know the little things that come up on your newsfeed that suggest you to like? I guess she saw ours. Our Quantum Leap podcast Facebook page got a lot more likes over the past week or so. When I asked everybody to join our Facebook page, they did. So we went from 188 to now it's over 612, I think, last I looked. Welcome to all of our new listeners. Yes, hope you enjoy the show. Mac Jackson says, We discuss Quantum Leap on my podcast as well. YouTube.com slash Mac W Jack, the MacGyver podcast and the Never Gets Old podcast. You can go and check out the MacGyver podcast and the Never Gets Old podcast. They're on Facebook if you search for them. And uh, you can go ahead and like those too. That'd be awesome. A MacGyver podcast. I wonder if they talk about the episode that Holly Fields was in. That'd be something to listen to. I love podcasts on old television shows because it, it just really helps as you're watching along to uh, pass the time at work or in the car while you're watching the series. You are totally a podcast junkie. I am. I have a few podcasts I like, but I'm, I just am... I'm an audiobook listener. So we still, it's kind of the same thing. Do you like any of my podcasts? Yeah, of course I like your podcasts. <laughs> there was a pause. Well, um, <laughs> you know. Speaking of our Facebook page, we have some listener submitted artwork on there. It's about 20 pictures. Uh, nice artwork by. And Mista or Ang Mista. I'm not really sure how to pronounce that. So I'm sorry if I butcher it. And you can always tell us which one is right so we don't mess it up next time. But really cool artwork. Yeah, pictures of uh, Sam leaping and all kinds of cool stuff. I don't know if you remember, Heather, but our last show, we were asking listeners to leave voicemail feedback. Yes, yes. And also, we were reminding people about our essay contest. Mm-hmm. So, what did Hayden McQueenie do? Oh, he followed through. He combined both. He submitted his What Quantum Leap Means to Me essay through our voicemail line. I'm pretty sure he's like a co-host at this point. Pretty much. Yeah. He's not on the payroll, though, right? I don't know if we can afford him. We can't afford us. Right. <laughs> All right. So without further ado, this is What Quantum Leap Means to Me by Hayden McQueenie, read by Hayden McQueenie. Woohoo! Hi, Heather. Hi, Albie. This is Hayden calling from Melbourne in the merry old land of Oz. You said I should leave you a message. Ask and ye shall receive. We recently had a week of temperatures above 40 degrees Celsius. Uh, that's 104 degrees Fahrenheit. So, being housebound, out of sheer boredom, I wrote my What Quantum Leap Means to Me essay. So, here it is. My first exposure to Quantum Leap was through my mother. She saw most of the series the first time it was shown in Australia and loved it so much that when our family first got pay TV and Quantum Leap was being played from start to finish, my mum would, without fail, watch and record onto VHS every episode. I saw bits and pieces of the first few episodes, but due to the limited attention span my 10-year-old self could muster, I wasn't really interested. But one evening, bored, I decided to sit down and watch an episode from the start. It was The Color of Truth, an episode dealing with racial segregation. I've never seen anything like it, a person not being able to sit down to eat your lunch even after you've paid for it, nor be able to sit with your friends to have tea, not be able to take a drink from a water fountain, and worst of all, not be able to get medical attention for a dying member of your family. I was shocked. I think I was yelling at the television at the idiocy of this town. I've always loved history, but I knew very little about American history. Even though I knew about how the Aboriginals were treated, including having the world's only successful genocide, the Tasmanian Aboriginals, uh, we never really had segregation or racism to that extent, so I was flabbergasted. 
As the episode progressed, my mum explained why Sam's reflection looked different, why Hal could only be seen by Sam and could walk through things, and the general time travel putting things right that once went wrong premise of the show. I was hooked, and after that I would too, without fail, watch every episode with her, except for some of the more violent or adult-themed episodes that my mum felt were inappropriate. I sneakily watched those on her VHS tapes. <laughs> uh, for me, Quantum Leap is a show unlike any other. The time travel elements of the show, combined with future technology, such as holograms, supercomputers, handlinks, really make you wonder what technology could be possible in the future, and gave it a science fiction element, which I love. But the show has so much more to it than that. The friendship between Sam and Al is something that moves me. The fact they would be willing to do anything for each other. Family is also a driving force throughout the series. The love Sam has for his family is probably what drove him to create Project Quantum Leap in the first place, to try to improve their lives. And Al's lost love is probably what drove him to team up with Sam on this endeavour. So I try to surround myself with good friends, family, and people who make my life better and don't take them for granted. I'm actually a teacher, so I enjoy seeing how people grow and evolve. And it's fantastic to watch how not only Sam grows to trust his own instincts over time, but the fact that the project itself also grows and evolves. They say necessity is the mother of invention, and this is by far the case with the project. When the Leapy's aura traumatizes Al, they tweak the neural link so that Al sees Sam. When Sam needs to be shown something, the imaging chamber is tweaked so that Sam can see whatever or whoever Al touches. When Sam needs to communicate in real time information that only the Leapy knows, they increase the power so that the Leapy can see and hear everything in the imaging chamber and have Sam hear what the Leapy says. Who knows what they could have come up with if the show had continued longer. One word sticks out to me to summarise the series as a whole, and that is faith. Diane McBride makes some very poignant words. Even though we don't have any proof that Dr Beckett has travelled through time, we feel such attempts are necessary for the human cause, and the important thing is that we try. Those words have always stuck with me, and as a teacher, I try to live and pass on that philosophy to my students. Trying is the first step towards success, and mistakes or failed attempts are something to be learned from. I also believe that if you give people a chance and see the good in everyone, you'll be pleasantly surprised with what they accomplish and what you get back in return. Uh, it's interesting that both Sam and Al believe in outside forces greater than themselves. But while Al feels fears everything supernatural and evil, like vampires, ghosts, mummies and the devil, Sam embraces the idea of anything supernatural that's good or could add to the human experience, like angels, aliens and God. Spoiler alert, all of these things are real in the Quantum Leap universe. To me, it reinforces the idea that while there are many forces at play, few of which we understand, the good forces are always stronger and will always help you. So to conclude, the main message that Quantum Leap sends to me is to trust your instincts, never stop trying, surround yourself with good friends, don't take your family for granted, and try to do the right thing by everyone so that nobody will need to go back and put right what once went wrong. Um, I hope you enjoyed that. I'm really looking forward to the What Price Gloria episode of the podcast in particular. Um, so, yeah, have a great time. Oh, P.S. for Albie, not the Brady's XXX. I'm not going to tell you how I know that. <laughs> it's really cool to hear his voice. He really is from Australia. <laughs> just in case we weren't sure. <laughs> I just like all things Australia. I'm like that. I don't know why. We should visit Australia. Let's go visit Hayden in Australia. And knock on the door. He's, he'd be hey, like, Hayden. Remember us? We're from the Quantum Leap podcast. He'd be like, yeah. We are here for the Quantum Leap marathon. <sighs> What's going on? That would be cool. <laughs> we could watch like the first episode about three in the middle and then the last episode with him. We'll leap around. 
<laughs> Thank you so much, Hayden. That was a great essay, and uh, he just knows his Quantum Leap stuff, for real. Yeah, we are so lucky that we found a Quantum Leap pro. You have won a Quantum Leap comic book. As you heard, there are many, many ways to get in contact with the Quantum Leap podcast. Leave feedback, let us know what you're thinking, and just uh, express your general love for Quantum Leap. I'm sure people get tired of just hearing our voices every episode, so we want to hear your voices too. So make sure to call and leave us a voicemail. Our voicemail line is 707-847-6682. And if you're not brave enough for the voicemail line yet, we have tons of social media outlets that you can contact us at. We are on the Facebook at facebook.com slash quantum leap podcast. <laughs> the Facebook, you're so old. It's <laughs> <laughs> on purpose. <laughs> we are on the Twitter and uh, our handles at quantum leap pod. I think we're on Instagram too, just in case you want to see some cool quantum leap photos. That's quantum leap podcast on Instagram. We have a email address if you want to send us an audio file or just an old fashioned email. Is that old fashioned now? Wow. It is quantumleappodcast at gmail.com. And again, thanks to all the people who have liked us on Facebook and welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast universe. Are you excited for next time? I mean, did you see where Sam leaps into? We finally get to see the woman episode. This is, unless I'm being misled again. (laughs) Almost. Maybe a couple more episodes from now. (laughs) Yeah, I'm pretty excited. I don't know where they're going to go with this, especially now that I know that Sam is actually in his body, but people just see the woman. But I don't know. It's going to be interesting. I'm thinking somebody sees the woman's body. I know for a fact that somebody sees Sam in this episode. What? I know. Intriguing, isn't it? I'm a little excited. The next episode, What Price Gloria? It's October 16th, 1961. For the first time, Sam gets to use his own name. There's just one little tiny catch. This time, he's a woman. I'm a woman. And I'm in love. Let's face it, you're a knockout. Would you stop looking at me like that? Sam, you better get used to it. You're going to have to convince everybody you're a woman. No. Yes. No. Yes. That's the rule, Sam. This is sexual harassment. I don't know what that is, but I like the sound of it. This is hard on me, Sam. It's hard on me. I can't stop thinking about you. Time has packaged my best friend inside a goddess of love. He wants to marry me. He's already married. This is why you're here, Sam. He's leading Gail. He was just waiting for the promotion so he could afford to fight for custody of the children. I'm getting married. No, she's not. What happens? Uh, Well, uh, when she finds out that Mr. Wrong won't marry her, she commits suicide. This episode is written by Deborah Pratt, so I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, she wrote The Color of Truth, right? Yes. That was a good one, too. A lot of the good episodes are from her, so I'm looking forward to this one, and uh, it'll be nice to see Sam as a woman. (laughs) It'll be interesting, that's for sure. I wonder what Al's going to say. Hubba hubba. (laughs) Probably something like that. Something like that. And until next time, this is Albie. And Heather. And from all of us at the Quantum Leap Podcast. Have a leaptastic day. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Quantum Leap Podcast. Go to quantumleappodcast.com to listen to new episodes. The Quantum Leap Podcast is not affiliated with Belisarius Productions or Universal TV. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter to get behind-the-scenes information 
exclusive content, and to be notified first when a new episode is available. The thoughts and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent or reflect those of the Quantum Leap Podcast, Baron Space Productions, its partners or affiliates. The Quantum Leap Podcast is edited by Albie, researched by Juan. The Quantum Leap Universe and all it contains is the property of Belisarius Productions and Universal TV. No infringement is intended. The Quantum Leap Podcast is a Baron Space production. And of course, there's always that Volcom. And of course, there's always that vocal. And of course, there's always that vocal. That's a hard word just for vocal. Vocal. You're saying it right. I don't know why you're. It really is unfathomable, though. It really is unfathomable. Fathomable. It really is unfathomable. Man. Going back. Like, we, it takes us so long Mm because we can't even talk. We have a podcast. Ready? It really is unfathomable. <laughs> oh, man. I can do it. I can do it. It really is unfathomable. Unfathomable. Thank you to the Quantum Leap Wikia for a beautifully... Re- think... Ooh. <laughs> they definitely did shape my adulthood. I don't think... What? What? I, I said the same thing you said? No, I feel like shaped my adulthood is a really dirty sentence for some reason. <laughs> shaped my adulthood? <laughs> Depends how you say it, I guess. <laughs> to further the apology, 1988, Reagan signed legislative apo- uh, signed a legislative blah. I'll start over. One of the most famous people I know of that one of the most people. And we have some feedback. 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 I just imagine the Terra Nova lady going feedback. Ba ba ba. I'm a woman. Boobs. I don't know. Um, Charlie had broken up with Sam. Had broken up with I, I, Naomi. Yeah. Klaus and no. To jump back into the American Asian. Mm.